Greetings Grapple fans, and welcome to another one of our debrief episodes of Let Me Tell You Something, where myself, Lorcan Mullen, and my co-host, Simon Cross, say, take some time away from Dave Meltzer's to-watch list of all the matches he's seen that he's rated five stars or higher, put them into a list, share our individual lists, and make from that a definitive five that we would recommend you watch out of the first 60 now that we have watched. So, Simon, do you have your list ready with me? That with you, not with me. I've got my list with me. You've got your list with you. That is how lists tend to work. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, I do have my list to hand. Um, but do you also have, not more importantly, but do you have your list previous to this? I your, do. Your list for matches 1 to 50. I do indeed. Do you want sir. to remind people of what had been your top 10 matches up to match 50. Then I shall give mine. Then I shall give a quick rundown of the 10 matches that we have subsequently watched. And then we will give our revised top 10 and our revised top 5. How does that sound? Sounds good. Do we do, shall we trade place for place? Let's just do your list and then I'll do my list. Okie doke. Okay, so I had at number 10, um, as listeners will well know by now, uh, how I refer to it. The third incarnation of Jumbo's team versus Mitsuharu, versus Mitsuharu Misawa's team. Um, that's a six-man tag match. Then I have uh, Ric Flair versus Barry Windham, their second outing to receive a five-star rating from Big Dave. Then I have got Kenta Kabashi versus Dr. Death Steve Williams, a match I like. I, re- I rated quite highly. Maybe I just like two big burly men hitting each other. I think that was oh. the, that the, that was the first of your five star matches on this list. So nine to ten, you didn't give five stars, but eight up to one, you did. Yes, uh, and number seven, another match. Obviously, I gave five stars too, as Lorcan has alluded to, is Mitsuharu Masawa. I've heard of him. He's been on the list before, mm. my list before. Um, as has Kenta Kabashi uh, taking on. Um, Toshiaki Kawada and Akira Tawe on in January 1995, the tw- January 24th, 1995. In P6, I have got Ric Flair versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, their third out of four five star outings. This was the two out of three falls match at Clash of the Champions 6 in the New Orleans Superdome. It was. Uh, at five, I've got Kenzakabashi again. And um, his tag partner, Kikuchi, forget his first name. Soyoshi. There you go. Versus Doug Furness and Dan Crawford. Remember, I got the white names there. Mm. <laughs> uh, the Can-Am Express, as they're so known. Uh, in position four, I have got Ric Flair versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. WrestleMania 89. Of, I was going to say, ever get the sense of deja vu? Mm. <laughs> going through all these names. <laughs> Speaking of which, Mitsuhara Masawa and Kenta Kobashi taking on Toshiaki, Toshiaki Kawada and Akira Tawe. They're 12th of March 1993. 3rd of December, Simon. You did that wrong last time as well. I did as well. You haven't revised your notes at all. No, well, no, I am reading the same list. Mm. <laughs> uh, number two is Jumbo's Army versus Masawa's Army at their second five-star outing that was in april uh, of 1991 and it was also my number one for about two or three debriefs i think yeah. um, it's usurper was mitsuharu misawa in singles action ah. against toshiaki kawada in um dave's first ever six-star match and quite frankly i can see why Absolutely. Well, just to give you my version of that top 10 list, at number 10, I had the second match between Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat that we watched for this series, not the Clash match, which you might have thought was the second. We're talking about the Fan Cam Shock House Show match in Landover, Maryland in March of 1989. 
Number nine on my list was the first of my five-star matches. So at this point, I give him one more match than you, five stars. That one was Mitsuhara Masawa's coming out party when he defeated Jumbo Saruta at the Budokan Hall in June of 1990. At number eight, the one and only women's wrestling match on either of our lists, as Dynamite Kanzai and Mayumi Ozaki of JWP tried to claim their rival promotions tag team titles, the 3WA tag team titles, from All Japan Women's Manami Toyota and Toshio Yamada at Dream Slam 2 in April of 1993. A few months after that, we have the number seven match on our list, which was Kenta Kabashi facing off against Stan Hansen in July of 93. At number six, the first match from the WWF to get onto Dave Meltzer's five-star list as Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon battled it out at WrestleMania 10 to decide who was the undisputed Intercontinental Champion, and they decided that through the means of a ladder match. At number five, it's Simon's number six as Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat tussled in two out of three falls contextual rules at Clash of the Champions 6. At number four is Simon's number five. Kabashi and Kikuchi tried to win the All-Asia Tag Team titles from the Can-Am Connection or Express of Doug Furness and Dan Crawford. At number three is Simon's number two. Jumbo Saruta, Akira Tawe and Mantanobu Fushi Try to beat Mitsuharu Masawa, Toshiaki Kawada, and Kenta Kabashi in April of 1991. And my number two, like Simon's number two, have been my long-standing number one, Ric Flair against Ricky Steamboat at WrestleWar 89. That was Simon's number four as well. My number two, because my number one is Simon's number one. It's Masawa Kawada. It's the 3rd of June, 1994. It's the first ever six-star match. And maybe, just maybe, it will be the greatest wrestling match of all time. And maybe, just maybe, it will be at the top of our list. Even when we go another maybe 100 matches deep at the rate Meltzer's currently doing (laughs) five-star ratings. He is firing them out. Our list is growing at an exponential rate. Exponential. And we pulled those... Nicolage. We pulled those lists together to make a definitive five five star matches. And they are now, uh, they were after match 50 Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat, two out of three falls, Clash of the Champions six, Kent Kabashi and Soyoshi Kikuchi against Doug Furness and Dan Crawford at number four, Misawa Kawada and Kabashi against Saruta Tawe and the Shithouse Fushi, April 1991 version at number three. Number two, which had been at number one from list from the second list onwards. So from up to 20, 30, 40, and then it dropped off at the 50 mark, is Ric Flair against Ricky Steamboat at WrestleWar 89 to be usurped by Misawa Kawada at the Budokan Hall on the 3rd of June 1994, the first ever six-star match. So, Simon, after that... We had another 10 matches, and a few more five stars were being dished out by both you and me. You and I, or one of the two. And just to give you a quick reminder of what they were, the first one was Mitsuhara Masawa competing in the Champions Carnival Final against this long-standing tag team member of these five-star matches, but making his solo, solo, uh, one and only, his sole solo offering away. In April of 95. That was followed up by a 60 minute draw. Under Joshi. As Kyoko Inoue fought Manami Toyota. For the 3WA singles championship. And that was a year's gap actually. Between the previous match. This took place in May of 1995. Then we had a tag team epic. As Masara and Kabashi. Once more clashed with Kawada and Tawe. Hoping Masara and Kabashi. Hoping to hold on to their All Japan World Tag Team titles. Back to Joshi, as it was Aja Kong facing off against Manami Toyota. Uh, the second of the matches between those two to be featured on this list. Then it's another All Japan six-man tag, as Masaru and Kabashi team up with Satoru Asako to take on Toshiaki Kawada, Akira Tawe, and their extra man, Tamon Honda. That was also the last match on this list that involved Masawa and Kabashi teaming up together. As Simon rifles through his notes very audibly, I will continue with my list. 
And it's another couple of Joshi matches. As Kyoko Inoue teams up with her sister Takeo Inoue to take on Manami Toyota and Seiki Hasegawa in two out of three falls rules. And then the final women's wrestling match at this time of recording to be given five stars as Manami Toyota entered the ring for the eighth time to perform a five-star match in the, in the eyes of Dave Meltzer as she faced Akira Hokutu. Then we had a couple of tag matches involving Mitsuhara Masawa's new partner, the up-and-coming youngster Junakiyama. In the first Very one, handsome. Mm, eh. The first one he faced off against Kawada and Tawei, yet again. Masawa's eternal rivals now have a new plaything to slap the shit out of. And then they fought against Steve Williams and making his second appearance on this list. Ace himself, Johnny Laurinaitis, a.k.a. Johnny Ace. And the previous episode was our 60th match, and it was the one and only Michinoku Pro match, and it was the one and only 10-man tag team match, not in a War Games confinement, as Tiger Mask 4, Gran Hamada, Gran Naniwa, Masito Yakushiji, and Super Delphin fought the Kayantai DX Jalux team of Dick Togo, Takamichinoku, Men's Teo, Shofunaki, and Shiryu. So, some extra five stars were dished out. Some changes will have been made to these lists. I now have ten matches on this list that I have given five stars to. And I think that's probably the same with you as well, Simon. Uh, yeah, I, I'm wrong. I do have now a five-star clean sweep on my top ten. And let's start with the first one on that list for you. What is your number 10? So, at number 10, and the first new entrant Ooh. on this list, I have Mitsuharu Masawa in singles action against Akira Tawe. Ah. Interesting. So, Tawe makes an appearance in singles competition on your list. And what, pray tell, is your number... What is my number 10 option... It's another Masawa match, and it's another singles match at the Budokan Hall. But in my one, he's taking on the man that helped mold Akira Tawe into the monster he was, and that is the fellow six foot four fighter Jumbo Saruta. Number nine, Simon. <clears throat> Number nine. Sisters are doing it for themselves. I have Aja Kong versus Manami Toyota, their second outing. And it's a Joshi match for me as well, Simon. I'm every bit the horrible sexist you are, it turns out. <laughs> as my number nine is Dynamite Kanzai and Mayumi Ozaki taking on Manami Toyota and Toshio Yamada. At number eight, I have Mitsuhara Masawa and Kenta Kabashi in tag action against uh, Toshiaki Kawada and Akira Tawei. This is their January... Um, the 24th 1995 outing, which was on my previous list. My number eight is my previous number seven. It's Kabashi, it's Stan Hansen, it's July 1993. My number seven is Ric Flair versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, their third outing. The two out of three falls match from Clash of the Champions 6. My number seven is Shawn Michaels versus Razor Ramon at WrestleMania 10 in a ladder match. That implies there's some new entrance further up the pecking order for both of us. Mm -hmm. Not at number six, though. Number six is a uh, is one that has held its place for quite some time on the top ten. It is Kabashi and Kikuchi versus Doug Furness and Dan Crawford. My number six is your number seven, Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat. At Clash of the Champions 6. My number 5 also involves those two men. But it's their fourth outing. Their Wrestle War outing. Okay. And my number 5. Is Kabashi and Kikuchi. Against Furnace and Crawford. Guess you just like those Canadians slightly more than I do. Mm. At number 4. It's um. Well. It's those boys again, Misawa and Kabashi versus Kawada and Tawei. This is their 3rd of December 1993 outing, as I have been frequently corrected on. So your previous number three. My previous number three. My number four is my previous number three. 
It's the six-man tag team match between the Super Generation Army of Misawa Kawada and Kabashi, facing off against Saruta Tawe and Fushi on the 2nd of April 1991. It's the second outing, isn't it? Yes, the second one. Yeah. At number three, I have a new entrant, but involving the same four men as my number four. I have got Misawa and Kabashi versus Kawada and Tawe. This is their... June the 9th, 1995 outing. Simon, that's my number three as well. Hey! Great minds do indeed think alike. What's your number two? My number two um, was my number two last time. It's um, your... I can't remember if it was number four or number five for you. Number four. Four, it is. Jumbo Super Generation Army versus uh, Misawa's Army. April 1991. Round, but there we go. You can tell it's late. Yeah. It's Jumbo's Army versus the Super Generation Army, April 1991. My number two hasn't changed either. It's Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat. It's WrestleWar 89. And that means our number one remains number one. Masara and Kawada live to fight another day at the top. And to be fair, uh, just thinking back to that match again, it's like, you're right, Lorcan. What I don't know, it could, it could well still be there. In a hunt up at debrief one twenty, debrief one thirty, debrief one forty. It's going it, to take a hell of a match to knock it off that perch. It is. It is. So, what we have here clearly is a revised top five because we have to add in somewhere in this list the nineteen ninety five June ninth tag team match between Masara and Kabashi against Kawada and Tawe. So I think it's pretty obvious that our number five should be Jumbo's, uh, sorry, should be Kabashi and Kikuchi against Doug Furness and Dan Crawford, which means eliminated from that list is Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat at Clash of the Champions 6. It was there for a long time, but it finally has been knocked off the top five. Meaning that there is one sole American wrestling match going on that's not an all-Japan match featuring at least Masara and Kawada and probably Kabashi and occasionally Tawe as well. (laughs) But the question is, where does it go? Does it go above Flair and Steamboat? Does it go above the six-man tag match? Because we both have those listed as our number two, but Masawa Kabashi against Kawada Tawe is our mutual number three. Yeah. You have Jumbo's Army at number four. I have, uh, sorry, you have, um, no, you have Ric Flair's Steamboat at number five. I have it at number two. Um, the problem is that, like I said before, we agreed that Flair and uh, Steamboat goes above the six-man tag. Yeah. So what I would suggest is that we place that above the six-man tag, but okay. below Flair Steamboat's. Okay, yeah, that's 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 understandable. Obviously, we've got to hold ourselves to the same mm. uh, standard as we held ourselves to last time. So, if I just go through this list and you say if you agree with it, number five, Kabashi and Kikuchi against Furness and Crawford. Number yep. four, Masawa Kawada Kabashi against Saruta Tawe and Fushi, April 1991. Number three. Masawa and Kabashi against Kawada and Tawe, June 1995. Number two, Ric Flair v. Ricky Steamboat. And number one, Masawa v. Kawada. Nailed it. Love it. Three and four fall down one each to four and five. The previous number five is knocked off. And our mutual number three is this list's mutual number three. Masawa and Kabashi against Kawada and Tawe. Welcome to the penthouse, guys. You're already here. You've just renewed it for an. Uh, you've you've just bought more like, ah, uh, you've just bought another table at the gala. <laughs> it's pretty crazy when you look at it. This is a match. I'm just going to look at the list now. So it's one, two, two, four, eight, fourteen, eighteen. So there are eighteen participants in our top five matches, and yet Masawa's in three of them. Kawada's in three of them, Kabashi's in three of them, and Tawe's in two of them. They are the elite. Yeah, wow, they they truly are the four pillars of heaven in in wrestling terms so far. 
it's just madness. Um, but what's even crazier than that, Simon, is that when we record our next debrief, we'll have had the final match of all but one of those men to have discussed. It's just weird. We are we are coming towards an end um, of an era. I'm, I'm going to miss him. Well, we I'm have not... already had the end of an era in that we've had our last match involving women wrestlers. And I believe, Simon, that our email correspondence this episode is related to that very fact. Uh, yes, yes. The um, the question is... That was sent into lmtyspod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for that. It was, um, why is it that this is the last women's match, um, so to speak? Why? What caused Dave to not rate another match five stars that involved women? Uh, was it the fact that as soon as this era involving Manami Toyota died off, he just lost interest? I mean, you know? Yeah, who asked that question, sorry? Uh, that was John from Morecambe. John from Morecambe. Well, I'm just doing a little check-up right now. If there are any matches from AJW that he gave maybe... Four and a half stars subsequent to that. So his last one that he gave four, uh, five stars to was Akira Hakuto against uh, Manami Toyota. And that was on September 1995. And in the 24 years that have followed from that, there's not been a women's match that Dave Meltzer has rated five stars. He's given a few very high ratings. I believe he gave Sasha Banks versus Bailey, which I would would give five stars to. Uh, I think he gave that four and a half. I believe he gave the Becky Lynch-Charlotte Flair match four and three quarters uh, that they had at Evolution, the last man, the last woman standing match. Or last man standing, I suppose, since it was Becky Lynch. Um, but I'm just looking... I think one of the big problems was that the, the key source for his uh, Joshi diet at the time uh, died out. All Japan women was a promotion that lasted until 2005, but I believe they lost their TV um, deal in 1997. And then they got another one. uh, They also lost one. um, They they would lose. They would regain and lose their TV rights as time went on. Um, I think also maybe Meltzer became a little bit stricter. I don't know why. We'll have to cross that bridge when we come to it to play some bingo there. Uh, let me tell you something, bingo. Because he gets very, very um, tight with the five stars very soon after this. Yeah. Um, I wonder if part of it was maybe changing attitudes that because of Joshi, you started to get this excessive big moves, kickouts, and, and there became a more... Uh, the culture became leaning more towards this is poor psychology, this isn't how you the best wrestling matches are wrestled. Yeah. I don't know exactly. Um, I, I think it's part of, like I said, it's, it's a case of where are the opportunities for these people to be put into a position where they will give a match. Because like, so many times, it's very rare that Dave Meltzer gives five stars out to matches that don't feel at least some sort of cultural importance. They're in front of a large crowd. They're for a major title. They're a key point in a storyline. They're at the end of it, or they're, they're part of an ongoing series. The like the ones that have stood out as seemingly his weirdest five stars are like for those sort of slightly innocuous six man tags, like the one we had with Tamon Honda, Satoru Osaka, or the one yes. with Giant Baba. Yeah. Um, and maybe because I think it was that combination of not only were women having these matches, but they but the two times that Dave Meltzer was dishing out five stars was also at the times when they were at their cultural max they were selling out the big stadiums you know it's it's probably no coincidence that one of the reasons Dave Meltzer is giving so many New Japan matches five stars now and not in the noughties and the early tens is because New Japan means more now than it did back then it's a hot product right now so that there are extenuating external factors beyond just the the matches themselves that there's a significance to them 
Like, the first Ring of Honor match that he gives five stars is the 60-minute match. The f- and then he gives one to the Kabashi match, because that was a big deal. There needs to be a specialness to them. And I guess because business waned in for, for Joshi Wrestling, it has never recovered to the numbers that it had in these two hot periods in the 80s and the 90s that Dave Meltzer was, gave matches five stars, that maybe it's as much the business side of it. And then as women's wrestling in the U.S. has now reached its biggest cultural status its highest yes. status as, uh, and also its best quality matches are being had now he's getting closer and closer to giving them five stars maybe if the Sasha Banks Bailey match had happened at Wrestlemania and had been built up in a storyline perfectly and then for it was in the high, bigger stage bigger crowd the exact same match maybe Meltzer would have given it five stars after that like it was a continuing rolling tide of extenuating factors yeah, Unfortunately, no, the I can see... match wasn't the WrestleMania main event wasn't five star caliber. You had your no. problems with the triple threat rules. You had your problems with Ronda Rousey's issues as a, an inexperienced wrestler, um, and also just maybe there were nerves involved. It was still a good match. I don't know what he rated it. I think he gave it maybe three and a half or so. Yeah. Also, the botch finish didn't help. I do you think it's a case of the fact that women's wrestling on the large the grand scale in the u.s on the on the scale that has the most eyes on it uh has now seemed to have caught up to a level wrestling wise with what joshi was doing in the 90s and the 80s uh, it's uh, definitely got that pop cultural penetration although that you know to be fair becky lynch isn't in the top 10 singles charts or anything like that like the crush gals were yeah well so that's never know that one, but she is getting like endorsement deals with he- head and shoulders, and and she still gets the hot some of the biggest reactions when she comes out. But that's you know in spite of how she's be- being, being portrayed because of it. Yes, um, I think I think especially if AEW does its job to promote women's wrestling, especially if they're able to maybe pick up a talent or two both in the world of Joshi, because they are doing a lot of stuff with Joshi talents. Aja Kong, you know, one of the five-star wrestlers in this list, did appear at uh, All Out. Uh, sorry, at Double or Nothing. You'd assume there'll be another Joshi match at All Out. I I wouldn't be surprised. Actually, it's, it's a question, would you put... If you ask me, would I put money on women, another woman's match getting five stars from Meltzer... I will say it will happen within the next two and a half years at time of recording. So we're recording in June of 2019. So that Should basically you say by the end by of 2021? Yes. He'll have given a, a women's match five stars, either in AEW or in the WWE, perhaps. I think it's, it's, a, it's a bold statement, obviously, to say, considering how long it's been since he's awarded five stars to a women's match but to me looking that actually does sound like quite a safe bet because mm. um, I, 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 broadly just, I, don't know, I don't know for certainty yet what how AEW will present it and how much they want to give to the Joshi wrestlers who are probably more physically capable at this point of having a match that's five stars they might have mm. had one of those matches and Dave Meltzer just never got to watch it because you know there are so many hours of the day even for Dave Meltzer to be able to watch wrestling and rate it yeah, this is it. It's that, it's that, that's part of this. It's like if a tree falls in a forest and no one's there to give it five stars, yeah. does it mean it wasn't good? Like, like now, you know, Dave Meltzer's obvious priorities of what to watch are WWE, AEW, New Japan, and then when he gets time and there's a match that people wanting to watch, he will watch an All Japan match, if, especially if it involves, like, Kento Miyahara. But he's not necessarily going to watch the whole event. Mm. And so, again... It's that it, I think it does have to be that case. If it needs to be, a, it needs to feel like a big deal as well. There are very few matches in front of audiences of like two hundred or three hundred in an indie event that Meltzer will have come close to giving five stars to. And part of that is because those sort of atmospheres don't give enough of a sense of significance for it to be worthy of five stars. Although we'll cro- we'll, we'll talk about this when we have to. Meltzer himself is maybe bastardizing the five star ratings himself in recent months and uh, weeks and months. Yeah. Yeah, he's um, he's getting a little bit trigger happy, I think. Mm. Yeah, we're not complaining at all because we're going to have a sh- lot to get through in November. <laughs> <laughs> Our release schedule will get quite out of hand at this rate. 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. That was, again, my kind of free-forming... I think it's just a case of, in the mid-90s, what Dave Meltzer wanted to get his hands on were the things that were the hottest to do with wrestling at the time, and that would have been All Japan, New Japan, All Japan Women, some AAA stuff involving Rey Mysterio Jr. and Psychosis, ECW, WWF, and WCW. But he wouldn't have been... Even if there were great matches being held in the CWA in Germany... Because it wasn't that big a deal culturally, yeah. he wouldn't have had the time to watch them, and maybe he missed some matches that he would have given five stars to, or maybe there were matches of a high quality, but because they weren't in the context of a hot period within that time, he wouldn't have given them five stars anyway because there wasn't the atmosphere or the crowd to warrant it. And let's face it, without the internet being what it is now, it's harder to get hold of that stuff back then. Mm. Like just physically, like yeah, there may be a tape somewhere, but. You've still got to get it to Meltzer. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny when you watch when you, when you go through his newsletter archives. Like he'll report a, a match. Like he reports the, uh, the the Michinoku Pro match, but he basically gives a summary of what someone else, probably uh, Fumi Yamada, who's like his key uh, contact in Japan, will have said. And then if he if he thinks that sounds interesting, then he'll ask for the tape and he'll watch it himself and he'll see whether he would give it five stars or not. And he yeah. did in the case of that one Michinoku pro tag match. So that's funny. You get him reporting the results, but then a couple of issues later, he might then give it star ratings and go into more detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas now, especially for like New Japan World or any of these sort of things, uh, WWE Network and what have you, he can give instantaneous responses. And maybe also because he doesn't, he's like caught up with it in that moment. He doesn't have the time to sort of digest, wait, consider. Maybe. Yeah, he's acting on an instinct. Yeah. Which isn't, it, which I personally it's what think wrestling it's the best should way. Be, really. yeah. that, should, that should be how you watch. We're watching wrestling the wrong way, essentially, in this series. We're watching it the wrong way, so you can watch the best bits of it the right way. Is so well, that this can, is the level of sacrifice we're making. You can watch it in the wrong points. way as well, but not to the ridiculous extent that we have. Yeah, we're we're, we're saving you time with some of your ridiculousness. There you go. See, we're we're, we're an efficiency model. We're streamlining <laughs> your enjoyment of the wrestling world. We're doing the we're doing the the mining for you to to bring out the gold nuggets as represented by our top 10s and mutual top 5s. But we're also going to look at maybe some alternative options for you that Dave Meltzer himself might not have given 5 stars, but maybe we do. I And that's where the final part of this debrief, which is the alt 5 star. We look at a match that Dave Meltzer maybe didn't quite get to giving 5 stars. Maybe he just didn't like it as much as we do. Like, for example, he gave my favourite ever match 4 and a quarter stars, but we both gave it 5 stars. That was Bret Hart versus David Boy Smith at SummerSlam 92. And we're going back to the WWE yet again for this, and it's a match that Dave Meltzer did give four and three quarter stars to, and I get the sense that if it weren't for the last five seconds of that match, maybe this would have been a five-star match for us to cover. Simon, what are we talking about this time? Uh, We're talking about uh, the much-fabled Mankind versus Shawn Michaels match at In Your House Mind Games. Now, this is a match I'd heard a lot about, and I heard a lot of reverence in the way it was talked about, but I hadn't seen myself prior to um, us doing our research for this debrief. Had, had, did you, because obviously you, this was with our generational gap, you were more plugged into the WWF as it was back then yes, at the time. Back then, my access was limited in the extreme. I didn't have any friends or family that would publicly declare themselves wrestling fans. Thank God you carried on after you said you didn't have friends or family. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> didn't, I didn't want to get it, make it too tragic for you all. Um, <laughs> I like to keep a certain amount of mystique. <laughs> um, so, what... Uh, so I was aware of it. I actually didn't know how high an esteem it was held until uh, maybe a year or so later. I remember I was looking through I was looking through Raw magazine when it was written by Vince Russo, I believe, and he did a thing about the top five WWF matches of all time. Uh, number five, I think he put Bret Hart versus Owen Hart at um, WrestleMania ten. So you as a Bret Hart fan are already peaked because it's like four better than that. At number four, I think he put Shawn Michaels versus Razor Ramon at WrestleMania 10. And I think at at number three, he put Shawn Michaels versus Razor Ramon at SummerSlam 95. And he put Shawn Michaels versus Mankind at number two. 
I think I'm remembering that right. I know that it was in the top five. And I also remember that he gave Ricky Steamboat versus Randy Savage uh, number one uh, from WrestleMania 3. Yeah. Which we considered doing for our first alternative five stars, but decided to go with uh, Magnum TA against uh, Tully Blanchard instead. Well, the uh, the the debate. There's meant been many a word about the WrestleMania three match. Yes. We didn't want to like saturate things further. And for the longest time, this was sort of seen as that hidden gem. Uh, Mick Foley was the one that really kept it in the public consciousness. Especially... <laughs> Look how good I was. Look at it. <laughs> well, no, because he did say um, in his book uh, that obviously became the New York Times bestseller, reinvented Mick Foley as a public figure. Um, was maybe one of the first building blocks. That basically, no, no, have a nice day. No confessions of a smart wrestling fan. The book, basically, and within that book, he said about how his favorite match of all time was the one he had with Shawn Michaels at Mind Games, and that before then it had been his uh, False Count Anywhere match with Sting at Beach Blast '92. Yeah. Uh, subsequent to that, I think he's considered maybe putting his match with Triple H at Madison Square Garden. Royal Rumble 2000, and also his match with um, uh, Randy Orton at Backlash 2004 is maybe his favourite. Oh, his Randy Orton Backlash match is very good. Um, but that was the thing I always, so I always knew, and I also remember the Power Slam magazine rated it their best match of 1996. Um, I imagine it was very high in the polling for the Wrestling Observer newsletter match of the year as well. I don't have that to hand. Um, so I was always aware it was one of those ones to watch, and I think when I finally watched it was when it was released on a Mick Foley compilation DVD. I want to say it was Hard Knocks and Cheap Pops, or it was Shawn Michaels from the Vault Collection. It was one of those two, and I remember that Mick Foley actually brought it up when he had a when when he brought Shawn Michaels out to see if he was the guy that ran over Steve Austin. And uh, it was kind of, at that point, it was like Shawn Michaels was a bitter relic of that time and uh, obviously had been retired from wrestling and we didn't know where his status in wrestling was going to be and he really, after, it was basically his comeback time when he when he came back after four years out and was still as good as he ever was even though he couldn't do as high-flying moves as he used to. Yeah. That obviously led to this match. This match, I think, it became kind of a running gag how many times this match would be in, in compilation DVDs uh, that would have once been this hidden gem was like very much not hidden anymore. It had been over it. Well, <laughs> you know, well, it'd been, they'd gone into the well quite a lot. It's definitely a match that could have been lost and through the efforts of a number of people has maintained its stature. And I will say, having watched it, it's a sort of match I wish we could see more of, in that it is different. It's a very different Shawn Michaels match. It's a very different Mick Foley match. They basically fuse elements of them together to form something new out of it. Yeah. Like taking two great film genres and smashing them together, or two great music genres and smashing them together, and making something different from the parts. Yeah, because you you see an aggression, like a desperate aggression from Michaels throughout this match. Mm. Uh, And whilst we have seen aggression from Michaels, one of my favourite examples of aggressive Shawn Michaels is his match against uh, Vince at WrestleMania, just for just how much he hates Vince. But that's a different kind of thing. That's hatred. This is is, is fear. Yeah, no, well, desperation as well as, well, it's a bit, well, I'm six of one half a dozen of the other but you know his pre-match promo he just he, he basically says oh well it does i, I may not win this it's which not so much is... that he yeah i don't think it's that he doesn't doubt that he can win it's just that he's worried about what he'll have to do and what will be done to him mm-hmm. at one point he says though i might not win this match oh did he okay yeah yeah it was it was it was a subdued he's being interviewed by Ke- kevin kelly and it's something that now they might say like um like, if they're facing Brock Lesnar, they say, oh, no, I'll take a beating, but I yeah. will come back from this. Um, this, has, this has two of my favourite things when I love wrestling. Two of the things I love the most about wrestling. Paul Bearer and Jose Lothario. Well, of course. I will say Paul Bearer is a brilliant manager. Um, Jose Lothario, less so. Yeah. But the two things that it has going for it are that it's got two very different characters 
that have been kept separate from one another coming together in a combination that you're excited to see, but you don't exactly know what's going to happen. Yeah. My favourite example being, of recent times, the S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Wyatt family were kept separate for months and months and months. And then when they came together, the crowd was excited, knowing what these two different characters, sets of characters were like. I feel like got pre-bell this is awesome chance didn't yeah, it yeah if, if it weren't for the fact that they were so old it would have been something like that for goldberg and the undertaker yeah uh, well the lesson about that whole debacle the better yeah um that's one thing i love about it and the other thing i love about it is basically what i've said before this 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 clashing of styles actually creating something new and unpredictable and that they go against when they go against the formula and test themselves in different ways. Like this is a match where the babyface targets the heels' uh, body parts and is yeah. vicious in how he goes about it. And actually, no, the, uh, to be to be fair, I kind of slightly forgot what my train of thought with that. The other thing that I love is the story of a wrestler being taken out of their comfort zone and having to test themselves in a new environment. Yeah. Which Mick Foley was so good at doing. He did it with Triple H. He did it with Randy Orton. He did it with Edge. He did it with Sting. That he was this... He was entering a new environment. It's like when you face The Undertaker in, in Hell in a Cell or, or in a casket match or something like that. Yeah. That he will bring something out of you that you don't necessarily want to channel. That it's like this ultimate test for a, a person. Like, that's why I loved it with the Triple H match. And we might talk about that. We don't know yet in a later one. That for Triple H to prove he was the best, he had to prove that he could beat different people at their discipline. Yeah. That he could out-brawl the great brawler. That he could out-wit um, the best technical wrestlers. That, you know, he can keep up with the pace of the fast high flyers that he can do what's necessary to win in that other environment that truly makes them the best. The weird thing that I compare this to, and this is going to be weird, I don't doubt it for a second, Thundercats. That is the right. last thing I imagine you would have expected me to see. There were a series of episodes where Lionel, our hero, is being tested for his worthiness to be the leader of the Thundercats. And so what he has to do is he has to take on all of the other Thundercats in the thing that they're best at. So he has to have a race against Chitara, whose thing is that she's super fast. He has to have a test of strength against the other Thundercat, whose name I can't remember, uh, who is the strongman of the group. He has to outwit the two younger Thundercats, whose whole thing is about trickery and and, uh, disguise and hiding and, and all that sort of stuff. It, it it's so I always remember that series. It's like the one thing about Thundercats I remember vividly. I love that. That 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 uh, that idea of stretching a character. You could argue it was the yeah. same if like Superman would have to outrun the Flash. He'd have to outwit Batman. He'd have to outswim Aquaman. I don't know. He'd <laughs> <laughs> have to win a duel against Wonder Woman. You know, yeah. it's all those different things. And so that's what Shawn Michaels has to do. He has to go out of his comfort zone because Mick Foley's not going to have a traditional wrestling match with... Mankind's not going to have a traditional wrestling match with you. And so <clears> Shawn <throat> knows he has to be vicious. He has to target Mick Foley's knees. He has to ram him He has to ram him into the steel steps. He has to do a suplex that lands leg first on the steps. And later on in the match, when he sees an opening, he has to go after his fingers to try yeah. and incapacitate him for the mandible claw. Exactly, he's got to take that weapon away. Um, or oh, Ric Flair and... with Terry Funk. Ric Flair had to brawl with the Texan brawler. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's one of the reasons he like looked great in that match is he was going outside of his comfort zone. He was... We talked about how different that was to what we'd seen with uh, Rick in his encounters with uh, Wyndham and Steamboat. Mm. Uh, and, this, and you're right, this is a very similar situation where... Yeah. We're getting an extra string to the bow. We're seeing another side, you know? Mm. But also the Mick Foley is keeping up with the pace that Shawn Michaels can set. 
Yeah. That was the thing that Mick Foley always said he never really got credit for, that even though he was a big guy, he could move, and his cardio meant that he could keep up with anyone. And, you know, in fairness, at this time, Mick Foley's maybe one of his most svelte uh, yeah. periods. Uh, but, you know, he was a big guy. Did you notice, the, the one bit that I like to bring up in this match, uh, did you notice the bit where it almost seemed like it was falling apart for a second? When it went into, and it looked almost like it was going into a shoot? That was one of the first ever examples of a worked shoot. Um, is that when Sean just absolutely like mounts him and pummels him with punches? Yes, well, it's partly in that. Basically, it's a moment where Sean, Mike, where Mick Foley reverses a whip into the corner, and Sean looks like he's doing his classic jump, jump to the second rope, back uh, cross body. But Mick yeah. Foley instead has run to the other side of the corner, and Sean Michaels starts just going, "Come on!" Like as if he's getting annoyed. Because at this point, Sean Michaels was known to have a bit of a temper. You know, the month before, he's doing a top rope elbow drop, lands on his feet because Vader didn't move. Very loudly yells, "Move!" <laughs> kicks him uh, it's fair to say Michaels didn't take the pressure of being champion very well at this point No, uh, but he was still delivering these amazing matches uh, also a little point I want to say uh, I did a radio interview around the time I, my show was done and I think it was before I'd done the book and I was interviewed by a couple of guys who were wrestlers that had also done comedy and they had this radio show on this like not, it wasn't a proper commercial act. It was a radio station. Uh, you know it wasn't a big deal because I was asked to be on it. <laughs> and one of the guys that was there with me, the reason he was there to talk about wrestling occasionally, as well as other things, was that he was working for the WWF at the time, and you can see him in this match. Oh, okay. He'd gone to America to study TV production, and just on a whim, he'd applied to join the WWF afterwards. He wasn't a wrestling fan. And he ended up working with them for about three years. He left just before the Attitude Era, basically. And he had some really cool stories about working with Vincent Mann, the, the, the long hours that they expected you to work. If you see him, he's a very young guy. He's got like a grey jacket on. The most visible you'll see him is when they do that table spot where Mick Foley goes to back sloop like Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels reversed, sort of shifts in midair to do, turn into to do a like crossbody cross thing. Yeah. Table goes, and he's there with a the headset on, obviously doing like timings. He's sitting with the Spanish announcers. There's a camera guy or someone who's just not. He's not. He's laughing his ass off at it, whereas he is trying desperately to stay in character, and he's reacting like, oh, God, that wasn't supposed to happen. Yeah. And Obviously, yeah. kayfabe in it as much as he can. Yeah, yeah. So that was just one thing that it came... The other, thing that I... the other story that he told that I always remember, and I forget to bring this up occasionally, is that he was in like the editing bay with Vince McMahon, and they were editing the British Bulldog versus Owen Hart European Championship Tournament final. Yeah. And that was two heels working a very scientific, babyface, technical match, essentially, in front of a German audience. And this is, you know, proper technical, precise wrestling, one of the best matches both of these guys have had, not involving Bret Hart. And he said at one point during it, Bret Hart, uh, Vince Man just leaned back with a big smile on his face and said, this is great, isn't it? <laughs> and it was a weird little reminder that at least at some point, Vince was at his core a wrestling fan. Yeah. What you see Vince doing in this one, though, is uh, taking his headset off and having a little conversation with the referee at the end. Did you notice that? I didn't, no. Uh, sort of got lost in the shuffle with everyone like running around and... That's so great about this match. So many layers. Uh, it's a really good outing. Um, as I say, I do see uh, the point you raised earlier, though. The finish was a little deflating. Um, well, that's the thing. I think if it had ended with Shawn Michaels pinning Mankind after hitting the sweet chin music to the chair... That was such a good like motion as well. A clear kind of Sabu-inspired spot yeah. where he does a step up from the from a, a, a seated chair. Not quite sure how that got in there in that position, but there we go. And if that I think Mankind the... chucked it in, in like, and set it up, because I think he was going to do the um, uh, blah, blah, blah. it looked like at one, for like a half second he was thinking back suplex through the chairs. 
remember the chair being there when they did the back, back suplex. No, 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 no. I'm not saying he set it up. Like I'm not saying that's what he actually did in the ring, but I'm extrapolating from what they put down. That's what man- Mankind's sick head was thinking, and that's why the excuse was that chair was in that position, if you see what I mean. Maybe. But what uh, what he did... Um, well, also, I want to go back to... What I love about that table is that it's that Chekhov's gun. Because they set it up in that position very early in the match. Yeah. And they don't return to it until very late, which is something that has become increasingly popular now with NXT matches, like especially like the Johnny Gargano, Tommaso Ciampa epic... Yeah, brawls. They'll set something up at minute five that will be paid off at minute thirty six, or set up something in match one which isn't paid off until like the tail end of match two or something. I wonder if that's Shawn Michaels' influence there, because the table is in a natural position for it to happen organically in that moment. Yeah, and it's still at the point where tables aren't set to be collapsible or anything necessarily like that. They're not. They're not throwing monitors out the way, so there is still that chaos. Shawn Michaels has done it similarly in the match with Diesel at Good Friends Better Enemies, which was another No Holds Barred match, but that was like a David and Goliath situation, whereas this was like a horror movie. Yeah. Instead. Well, this this wasn't No Holds Barred because uh, you do get no. lovely bits of, um, even though there are like weapon like, allusions to weapon shots, actually, no, there are a couple of actual weapon shots in it. Um. It's the great management work of Paul Bearer that makes it, it... It doesn't make it obvious. What I like mm. is... And it's mainly more the production side of things in terms of the camera angles that they used. But it's never like... Sometimes when they do distractions with managers, it's really obvious and it's it's mm. got a hokiness to it. Um, it just didn't seem that way with what Paul was doing, you know? Yeah. And that's why that stuff didn't detract from the match in the same way that potentially the last five seconds did you know what i mean like those add-ons flowed with it one of the things i also love is that mankind in this match isn't an idiot he's not range but he's not an idiot yeah he's reversing moves when Shawn michaels charges him he backdrops him when his knee is hurt he takes methods to bring life back to it by jabbing at it with a blunt instrument that yeah that, that paul bearer hands him that he is he's a madman but there's a method to his madness. Yes. He's, yeah, he's not kooky. Yeah, nowadays they make him do too many, like, odd little things, you know. And it's not like they weren't above doing that in the past, like, you know, Kamala pinning someone the wrong way round or something like that. Yeah. But, no, you're right. uh, Considering it's, like, the the setting of it, nineteen ninety six. The in your house just looks a bit like dated now. Like the set and everything, and it just reminds me of WWF and mm. characters like Repo Man and stuff. He, he he's not that at all. He's well, it a was very that bridging gap, wasn't it? Where it was no longer the gimmicks. It was these weird complex characters like yeah. Gold Dust as well. That there's no like he's a bin man. He's a, you know yeah. He's Puerto Rican. He's a tax attorney. <laughs> He's a cowboy. You know, yeah. they, He's they the was, other cowboy. Yeah. Uh, they, were, they were starting to do things differently. So here's another thing, because we'll go back to the finish now, and, and Vader, whether it was him or the guy in production, the gorilla that screwed it up, was late getting out. Yeah. You can see it where Sean hits the move and he waits to pin mankind because he can't see vader coming and then vader's still not going to be able to get there in time to break it up at three so he stands up you also see mick moving his shoulder so i guess he was going to have to kick out if he had you know if necessary yeah even though it wasn't going to look great like you know kicking out to a super sweet chin music to a chair uh with a chair uh the other example of that being when sid justice had to kick out of Hulk Hogan's leg drop at WrestleMania 8 because Papa Shango didn't get there on time. Although my conspiracy-laced mind makes me think, did they deliberately do that because Hulk Hogan was leaving but Sid wasn't in that mood? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, yeah. And do you reckon that's what set Hogan off with being a dick and like, doing the non No, Hogan had been a dick count. many times before then. I know, but like... <laughs> 
Do you reckon maybe that's why he did like the Ste- the uh, Starcade thing with Sting? I'm sure, he can tell that's... himself that's why he did it. Yeah, but two wrongs don't make a right, Hogan. No, boy, oh boy, don't they? Um, so what I want to what I want to ask then is, does that last five seconds stop you giving it five stars? Were you not going to give it five stars anyway, or will you give it five stars? Regardless, uh, that's my first part of that question. Yeah, the ending does sort of take the sheen off it. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. But doesn't the chaos post match where Mick Foley then is able to do the mandible claw to Shawn Michaels, then he opens the casket and the Undertaker's there, yeah. magic, <laughs> and the crowds lose. It doesn't seem like the crowd's annoyed at it. No, no, the crowd are very swept up in it. And it's one of those uh, things where they are protecting both men. Well, that's the thing with when he does hit the mandible claw in match, is like he can't capitalise because his neck's trapped in the ropes. Mm. Oh, that's brilliant, that bit. When he's in trouble and suddenly Shawn Michaels is in every bit as much trouble. Yeah. I love that bit. It, it did very stru- It struck me very much as like wounded but, animal will just even like he, he lash out. Getting, yeah, even though he might be getting strangled to death, he's going to try and... Strangle you to death. That is more of a priority over his own safety and well-being. Yeah. That's a really good... That sticks in my mind, that bit. Mm. Uh, It's very good. I loved the psychology in this. Um, I really did. But, uh, yeah, I'm not saying... Yeah, it's it's just the finish. that basic thing. Is it a law now that a match that ends in a DQ or a count-out can't be a five-star match? It just was... I think you're right. Just because there's that awkward pause, it just takes you out of the moment at that key little bit. The post-match chaos sweeps you back up into a different thing entirely because there's so many elements. So, uh, including Psycho Sid's unorthodox way of punching. (laughs) Different strokes for different folks, isn't it? And it was Uh, basically a stroke. Yeah. Um, Well, I was going to say, if it works for Shane McMahon, it can work for Psycho Sid. Um... So then, say Shawn Michaels hits sweet chin music in the chair, drags Foley to the centre of the ring, and the ref counts to three. Does this match give five stars from you? Do you know what? I think it probably would. So it's literally those five seconds and the inconclusive nature of it. I guess that's what it is. Like, five stars needs to be a whole, and there's nothing conclusive. Mm-hmm. Without a pinfall or a submission, perhaps. Yeah. Because, let us remember, the first two or three matches on this list are count involve countouts and disqualifications. Yeah. The Bruiser Brody, Stan Hansen against uh, the Funks. Tiger Mask against Dynamite Kid. So, let's also... It would be a great question to ask. If this match had happened... If, say, Dave Meltzer had been stuck in a, in a, in a frozen capsicle... Caption. From from that period of 1984, and this was the first match that he saw, given that he wasn't averse in 1984 to give a five-star match to a match that ends in a DQ or a no contest or a count-out. Would that Dave Meltzer have given this five stars? Because he gave it four and three quarters. Quite possibly. Um, I think just by 96, the attitudes had changed. I think people wanted... On the grand, I think wrestling fans in general, on the grand, grand stage, the stuff that they remember is they remember moment like clean, definitive outcomes. So let's just quite quickly move this on, just because we can't talk about it for too long. We're coming up to an hour. Or it might be an hour. Uh, uh, We're coming to an hour anyway. Has that attitude that great matches need to have clean finishes or they have to have definitive finishes? Preferably clean. Yeah. Has that contributed to a culture of wrestling now where we just don't see heels cheating anymore? And that that emotional investments... Because this was a face fighting a heel. Even in Philadelphia, in an ECW audience. And they'd done ECW stuff, they referenced it. They'd have Mick Foley come out before the, 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 the pay-per-view to do a promo about how he hated his time in ECW as Cactus Jack. Mm. And they courted the ECW fans earlier on with an invasion angle involving the Sandman and Tommy Dreamer and Paul Heyman. Ooh. Do you get where I'm coming from? 
Because that's what the thing that bothers me about wrestling now is that no one wants. To, it seems like no one wants to cheat and be a heel that much anymore. Um, I, I think people still cheat, but they, they don't cheat. Cheating is never the way that they win. You know what I mean? It doesn't. It doesn't seem to be like the low blow sets up the finish. But it's not even just a low blow. It's the old days of Jimmy Hart getting his megaphone into the ring and, and hitting someone with it. That ultimately, it's all about provoking an emotional response. Whereas mm. the, it seems like now, because we're setting these rules as to what a great match has to be, consciously almost, or subconsciously, it's almost becoming an intellectual exercise, and that the parameters are strict, stricter now than they were. Yeah, that that old wrestling thing of good guys versus bad guys, of which this is a great example, is starting to die out because everyone wants to have that five star match with Dave Meltzer. And that is that is culturally affecting a lot of wrestlers to this day. Mm. I mean, you think of people who are just being out and out heels in the classic sense. Um, All it is now is just someone gets distracted and rolled up, and that happens to faces as much as it does to heels. Yeah, yeah, in ring, but uh, even out of ring, like in terms of like, well, everyone bad mouths like the crowd mm. uh, and such, but. And obviously, bad mouths their opponent, but it just doesn't seem to be the same. Like, oh, I think social media's got a problem with this because everyone's like, "Oh, well, cool. everyone's a prick." You mean? Well, no, ev- everyone. There's some like, disassociation between who they are and who they who they are. If you see what I mean, like on their Instagrams and stuff like that. One thing that Jericho does well uh, on his Instagram account is he will still like, whenever he talks about AEW at the moment, he will still like do like a little hashtag going still waiting for my thank you or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Like he just, there's the, there's the inertia, isn't there? There's like the little details. It's like when, um, uh, hurricane became Gregory Helms and had his like great heel cruiserweight title run. He yeah, specifically requested, he specifically requested that he didn't have merchandise because why should people buy heels clothing? It makes no sense. You meant to hate them. Yeah, but let me put it this way: when Gregory Helms now appears on WWF TV occasionally, or when he goes to an indie show, he's the Hurricane. Oh that's yeah, well, what, that's because that got an emotional reaction far more than Gregory Helms, the highly competent cruiserweight wrestler, got. Oh yes, no, absolutely. I mean, he's that that the hurricane is absolute gold. So that's my point. That now, you know, obviously we're obsessing over it because we're doing a show about it. Yeah, it's this weird thing. This absolutely fantastic match because of two seconds at the end, because of strict laws that we're putting down because we're taking this so seriously. <laughs> we're saying this isn't a perfect match. Yeah, no, and I, it's weird because. I entirely get what you're saying, but on the other hand, I'm just like, well, yeah, yeah, that is exactly what I'm saying. And I I get that you're highlighting how ridiculous that sounds. It's an added I, layer of, of absurdity to these multi-layers of absurdity yeah. that we're already dealing with. Yeah, like I, I agree that it is absurd, but yet it doesn't change my opinion because it's so entrenched, you know what I mean? It's like something out of the wire. Yeah. You cannot win, you cannot lose if you do not play. <laughs> I'm just going to take my ball of crack and go home. This is the world. This is wrestling smartdom, gentlemen. The gods will not save you. <laughs> oh, we went into a bit of a weird tangent there, but you duke, I, I. You duke the stats. You make your clean finishes, and three and a half star matches become four star matches. Four and a half star matches become five star matches. And five star matches become six and a quarter star matches. <laughs> but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. This is sing along with the host, the co host. <laughs> but Simon, let's wrap that up now. That was a long one. Uh, thank you for listening to the end. I'm sure you'll be able to pass some notions and, and ideas out of that stream of consciousness there. Thank you again to our emailer. And if you want to get in touch with us and give us another question or maybe offer your own uh, reinterpretation of what we said, because buggered if we've just understood ourselves. <laughs> it's lmtyspod at gmail.com. Simon, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do so? 
Uh, if you want to get in contact with me directly, I'm on Twitter where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Uh, free for the amount of seconds that we have overanalyzed to death uh, in the last five minutes. My name's Lorcan Mullum. That's L O R C A N M U L A for Aristotle, N for Nietzsche. That's my email address. That's my Instagram account. That's my Facebook account. That's my uh, letterbox, Twitter. All that sort of stuff. You've got to put an at gmail.com at the end of it to get my email. But anyway, we'll be back to rating matches within themselves and, and their five stars so we don't have to question them. At least it <laughs> Dave Meltzer's eyes. So why are we here? <laughs> We're back in all Japan yet again. But this is the final run of episodes that will feature all Japan pro wrestling. On time of recording... Maybe Kento Miyahara has done something to go up from that four and three quarter stars to get to the five stars. We'll find out towards the end of the year. But what we are covering next is another match involving Mitsuhara Masawa and his new partner, Junakiyama. And who are they facing? Why, it's Toshiaki Kawada and Akira Tsawe! Might what as well madness. enjoy it whilst we have it. <laughs> wow, who wouldn't enjoy Kawada and Tawe? But anyway, until that time, my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five-star time.